Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter two. We begin a new sermon series on the seven churches in Revelation. If you don't have a Bible, the scripture is on your sermon guide so that you can follow along. Revelation chapter two, starting in verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. I remember shortly after grad school, I was working at a consulting firm called Camp Dresser and McKee in Charlotte, North Carolina. And this was a, a firm that had offices all around the United States. And I remember in the office one day, our, our office was a medium, medium-sized office, we got the news from our office manager that the president of CDM was going to come visit our office. And it created quite a stir, excitement, anxiety, anticipation, because we, we knew of this president. We knew of his name. We knew that he, he ran the, the company. But his office was, was in another city far off. We never saw him. And yet this news was that he was actually going to come and walk among us in this office. It's the feel that we get as we launch into this study of Revelation. That Jesus is walking amongst his church and amongst his churches. That's the key phrase, the key imagery that sets the context for these letters to the churches. Verse 13 of chapter one, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. John goes on to describe this son of man in glorious, triumphant, powerful language. Then we read in verse 20 of chapter one, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Then verse one of chapter two, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, where does this imagery of a lampstand come from? There's lots of imagery in Revelation, and it's not up for grabs for us to guess what it means. A vast majority of the Imagery in Revelation is rooted in the Old Testament, and certainly that's the case here with the lampstands. 
They're introduced in Exodus 25 as God is giving instructions to Moses on building the tabernacle, which was where he would dwell among his people. And God uh, told Moses to place lampstands in the tabernacle that would light the tabernacle and symbolize his presence, his light, in a dark world. And then in Exodus 30, we learn that the, the care of the lamps was a daily task that was taken on by the priests, that they would come in every morning and add fresh oil to the lampstands, and that they would trim the wicks if the wicks had become charred, so that these lamps would burn brightly. In Revelation chapter 1, we learn of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who is walking among the lampstands, filling with fresh oil, trimming the wicks, so that his church, his churches can burn brightly. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, 14 to 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, why is this background so important? There's two reasons. Number one, Jesus is not sending these letters to the churches to make them a better and more comfortable place for attenders. No, Jesus is sending these letters to the churches so they can become more effective in the mission God has placed them on. Second, there's a need for light because there is darkness. Ephesus was a booming city under the power and control of Rome. There was a temple in the center of the city dedicated to the goddess Artemis, who was served by countless priests. The people of Ephesus were forced to declare that Caesar was Lord. Initially, Christians had enjoyed uh, protection under the umbrella of the Jewish religion, but when they realized that Christianity was different, that Christians wouldn't deviate from the teachings of Jesus, they, they were no longer tolerant of them. Christianity was a minority movement. And we see the beginnings of this in our own context, in our own culture, that Christianity is increasingly becoming a minority movement. And so the question they had, which is very relevant for us today, is how are we supposed to function and thrive as a church in this kind of environment? How does the church function as light in the midst of darkness? First, by loving God's truth. Jesus begins by praising the people in this church in Ephesus for what they're doing well. Verses two to three. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. 
I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This was a church that loved God's truth even when it wasn't popular. No, Jesus says you cannot bear with those who are evil. In other words, they had not become desensitized to evil. Their moral compass was functioning at a high level. They weren't compromising or condoning sin and evil. That's number one. Second, note Jesus says, they tested those who called themselves apostles and found them to be false. Well, how did they test them? They tested them by the word of God. They would listen to these false teachers and see what they were saying and try to ma- and match it up with scripture to see if it was true. They were like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 who examined the scriptures daily to see if things were right or wrong. They knew the word of God. They believed God's word was true. These were the people that called their pastor on Monday morning uh, to talk about something they heard in the sermon that they couldn't quite match up with the scriptures, like some of you have done with me. I'm an imperfect man. This is the perfect word of God. Jesus applauded them. I applaud you. I welcome you to email me or call me on Monday morning. Anytime, if you hear something that you can't square with Scripture. Now, why is love for God's truth so critical to the church functioning as light in the darkness? It almost seems counterproductive in the context we find ourselves in today. If the church is to reach the world, then then shouldn't the church back off truth just a little bit, be more tolerant in order to gain a hearing and be more relevant? This is the exact question that the church faced in the 1920s and 1930s that turned into an argument, a fight, so to speak, between the liberal and the conservative Christians. The liberal church said that the Bible is not really the word of God. And so they removed all the parts of it that were hard for people to swallow, namely all of the miracles. And they reduced it to a a book of, or a collection of principles on how to live your life, how to take care of the poor. There was no heaven, no hell. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Everyone is basically good and will go to heaven someday. And the thought is that this would make it more palatable for people and therefore help reach more people. Now, the conservative Christians, the conservative church said, no, the Bible is the word of God. It is the living, active word of God that miracles did happen, that Jesus did rise from the dead, that heaven and hell are real and that people are sinners, not good, but bad, in need of a Savior. Do you know what happened to those churches that quit believing the hard and sometimes offensive truths of the Bible in order to be relevant and to reach people? They died. They died, and they're still dwindling today. Oh, they may have a building, and people may show up on a Sunday, 
but their lampstand has been removed. The spirit isn't alive. They function as a social club that's no different than any other social clubs in our world. The point is this, conforming to the value system of the culture, being tolerant of everyone's views, and refusing to take a stand for truth doesn't make the church relevant. It leads to its death. It becomes dark like the rest of the world and therefore becomes incredibly irrelevant. The church functions as light in the darkness by loving God's truth and standing for God's truth. Second, the church functions as light in the darkness by loving God's people. After praising the Ephesian church, Jesus rebukes them in verse four. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Amidst all of their doctrinal purity, their standing for truth, their hatred of evil, there was a lack of love that this church had at one time earlier. I imagine it was a church that was doctrinally pure, but that lacked warmth, that lacked compassion, that lacked friendliness. Doctrinally pure, but it wasn't warm. You know, the church was planted in Ephesus by the Apostle Paul. He taught and preached at the church for three years, and then we learn in a, a decade later in its existence that Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, that Paul was mentoring Timothy. And then 30 years later, John writes of this church in Ephesus, and you say, what happened? How did they go from being a, a warm, vibrant, loving church to this cold, stoic church that lacked warmth. There's two reasons that come out of the text. First, verse six, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? Well, we don't know for sure. We just know that they were a, a group of false teachers that were teaching false doctrines, maybe the same people that are described in verse two. But I want you to notice the progression here. Right? In verse five, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. In other words, get back to loving God and loving people, that love you had at first. But then notice the distinction that Jesus makes in verse six. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to get back to loving people, but I'm not calling you to grow lax on sin. In other words, I'm not calling you Ephesus, you conservative church that is doctrinally pure but lacking love, to become a liberal church that loves people but that is lax on sin. Because the gospel is neither of those extremes. 
the gospel is not conservatism and the gospel is not liberalism. Jesus says the gospel is hating sin, standing for truth, hating sin, but loving the sinner. The reason that the church in Ephesus had abandoned the love they had at first was because they allowed their love for God's truth and hatred of evil to turn into an indifference towards people, especially sinners who were responsible for the evil. Let me give you a few examples of this. At a previous church where I served, I believe on or near Sanctity of Life Sunday, there was a group of people in the church that would go out on the main road out in front of the church, and it was a, a heavily trafficked road, and picket against abortion. Now, on the one hand, they were to be applauded for standing for God's truth. On the other hand, though, there was no thought given to the 18-year-old girl who had an unwanted pregnancy who would drive through those picket lines, who was scared to death, who was fearful that she had ruined her life and would not be able to go to college, who didn't know how she would afford a baby, who was experiencing the shame of her parents. What, what, what did that girl or what would that girl feel driving through such picket lines? I can tell you what she didn't feel, and that was freedom. She didn't feel freedom to stop her car and get out and go ask for help. No, she felt judged. She felt condemned. Several years later, there was a group of people in the church, possibly convicted by this, that started a home for women who had unwanted pregnancies. And they would uh, help them spiritually, financially, and emotionally to carry the baby to full term and give it up for adoption. It's what First Coast Women's Services does here in Jacksonville, and it's, it's why we love the ministry. On the, on, on the one hand, we're, we're not going to picket against abortion and show indifference and lack of love to women who are struggling with an unwanted pregnancy. But on the other hand, we're not going to just love these women, these women and tell them that it doesn't matter what they do. No. We're going to stand for God's truth. Grieve what abortion is, love women who find themselves struggling with an unwanted pregnancy, and give them an alternative that's rooted in the love of God. Or consider the example of sexual sin in our culture, whether it be sex outside of marriage, adultery, pornography, bestiality, homosexuality, gender identification, same-sex marriage. In other words, anything, anything outside of God's design for it. You can become so fixated on standing for truth and hating the evil that you grow indifferent towards the person who is committing the sin or committing the evil. For most of you, I would imagine that lack of love takes on the form of indifference. And Jesus' message is, oh, hate the sin, yes, hate the evil, 
but love the person who is stuck in it and who is trapped in it. The first reason churches become cold and stoic with no warmth or love is because people allow love for God's truth and hatred of evil to turn into an indifference towards people, especially sinners who are responsible for the evil. The second reason the Ephesian church had abandoned the love they had at first was that they had lost sight of the love of God. Verse seven, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers is a phrase that will reappear in the seven letters. What does it mean? It doesn't mean those who clean up their act. Romans 8.37, know in all, those, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul goes on to say that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. To the one who conquers means to the one who rests and rejoices in the love of God shown in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who has conquered sin and death and united to him, we also conquer. But why does Jesus say to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God? He brings us back to the very beginning of human history. When Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God bans them from the garden, and then he puts a cherubim and a flashing sword in front of the tree of life to guard the tree of life, and you, you read that and go, wow, God didn't want Adam and Eve to have life. No, in fact, it was just the opposite. By guarding that tree, God prevented Adam and Eve from eating of the fruit of the tree of life and thus living eternally in the unredeemable state in which the fallen angels exist. He guarded the tree of life because he didn't want to condemn us forever. He guarded the tree of life out of protection he longed for us to find redemption in Jesus Christ and then when he returns to eat from the tree of life and live for eternity in that glorious state. What love. God didn't condemn you even when he could have. That's what motivates you to not condemn others and to not act indifferent towards others. The very sin and evil that you hate is the very sin in you, maybe in a different form, that drove Jesus to the cross. A church that becomes a cold and stoic place without warmth and love is a church that has lost sight of the love of God. Let me close with this illustration. I want you to imagine that you, along with a group of people, are standing around a very a large and glowing campfire, and it's 30 degrees outside. 
And standing around this campfire, you're warm. There's wonderful conversation. There's fellowship. There's interaction. Now imagine you take a step back from the fire. It gets a little bit colder. Right? So you, you add a layer. And, and as you step back and add a layer, the conversation starts to slow down a little bit. Then you, then you take another step back. And it gets even colder. So you add another layer. And now the conversation takes another step down. Not much conversation happening. And then eventually, imagine stepping so far back that you can no longer feel the warmth of the fire and you're putting on a bubble jacket and you've got all these layers and you're stiff, you can hardly move, and you're not talking. That's a picture of what happens to the church when it loses sight of the love of God. And what does Jesus say? He says, repent. He says, repent and do the works you did at first, which is nothing more than moving back towards the fire. And guess what happens as you move back towards the fire? You start shedding layers, don't you? And guess what else happens as you move back towards the fire? You begin to talk again. And the fellowship and the interaction and the warmth and the love starts to kick up. A church that is warm is a church that is warmed by the love of God. How is the church or how does the church function as light in the darkness? Oh, it, it loves God's truth and it loves God's people. Let's pray. Father, would you draw us back to the warmth of your love? We confess and we repent of so falling in love with your truth that we've grown indifferent towards people maybe even grown a hatred towards people. Father, would you draw us to a place where we are humbled by your love shown to us in Jesus Christ? And would it cause us, while holding on to truth, would it cause us to move out towards people with intention in love? that your church would shine as light in the darkness, that it would be a community of people that hold on to truth, but that also love in such a radical way that the world takes note and longs to know what is behind it. And Father, would you give us boldness and courage to speak of Jesus Christ as those doors are opened. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.